Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, or your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. With over 20 years experience, my guest today, Donald Robertson, is a best-selling author, a writer, and a trainer. I first came across Donald's work when I read his recent book titled How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, which fits perfectly with one of my interests, which is the study of Stoicism. Currently living in Athens, he is a specialist in teaching evidence-based psychological skills and is known as an expert on the relationship between modern cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT as it's known, and classical Greek and Roman philosophy. We follow along with Donald in the conversation of Marcus Aurelius, for example, or Socrates. Donald was born and raised in Ayrshire, Scotland. He lost his father to cancer when he was about 13 years old, and that became a significant fork in the road for Donald. He worked as a psychotherapist for about 20 years in London, England, where he ran a training school for therapists before immigrating to Canada in 2013, where he focused on his writing and developing new online training courses. He is an experienced public speaker. His therapy practice specialized for many years in helping clients with social anxiety and self-confidence issue. His work and that of his colleagues has been often featured in the media of many countries around the world. He's an experienced instructional designer and e-learning consultant. He's been developing e-learning courses since 2006 when he joined a research team evaluating online CBD training for stress management on behalf of the UK Department for Health. He specializes in the design and delivery of online training for psychological skills and personal development. 
Today, Donald and I dig into the context of cognitive behavioral therapy, stoicism, the journey of Marcus Aurelius, and how stoicism can fit in our lives today. Listen in, enjoy, love this episode. Really enjoyed my conversation with Donald. Donald Robertson, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Excited to have you join me on the show today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our chat. Now, you're an author, you're a speaker, you have traveled the world, you've really, you're in Athens right now. You're actually living in Athens, and that's kind of cool that you've, uh, you're a Canadian citizen, born in Scotland, but... Yeah, that's right. I'm in Athens. I like to think I may be sitting here in the very spot right now where Socrates once stood or something. Well, <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know you, that's an interesting comment because, of course, that's what we're here to talk about. Now, you've you've uh, recently, I don't know how recent it was, I don't know when you released the book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, and uh, I've listened to it on audio and I've had to read it. And I want to share something with you right away, Donald, is that mm-hmm. I tried listening to your book on, I didn't try, I listened to your book on audio, but there's so much in it that I went, okay, no, I have to actually read it have a hard copy, and make a bunch of notes. So tell me this a little is, bit about your book. Great. I get paid twice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. So I, the bit, I think, it, when was it? April last year it came out, mm-hmm. you know? It's strange being a, a writer because you sort of, so you kind of lose track of things a little bit. You get really immersed in something, and then it kind of goes a little bit quiet while the publisher do whatever, and then it comes out and it's like a big deal. And then you kind of forget about it when you're working on the next thing and you're immersed in that. Like, so sometimes I'm a little bit out of sync. I'm in the middle of doing, I'm halfway through doing my next book at the moment, which is a, a graphic novel. Um, but luckily it's about a similar subject. It's also about Marcus Aurelius. So I, I don't get too disorientated by talking about how to think like a Roman emperor as well. There's a lot of overlap between them. I want to talk a lot about stoicism and, and that work. I, I mean, I started... I did a little bit because I, I got turned on to Ryan Halliday when I read uh, The Obstacle is the Way and Ego is Your Enemy. And then I, I actually did, he had a, a daily workbook that we would we studied and then would journal and do all of those things for a year. And it was a cool commitment to that. Anyways, that's a long you know kind of way to say that I really got into it and the study of stoicism. If somebody's talking to you, what the hell is stoicism? Are you giving, what, what would be your, what's your definition, Donald? I've got like three different ways of answering that. I'll give you the short one. Like, I mean, Stoicism is an ancient Greek school of thought, philosophy, that says that our own character and the use that we make of the events that befall us in life is the most important thing and more important than external things like health, wealth, and reputation. So it's an ethic. And the weird thing is that if you completely believe in that ethic and embrace it, it obviously has psychological implications. And you'd think it would make you more psychologically or emotionally resilient. So it's a moral philosophy, an ancient moral philosophy that's closely associated with improved psychological resilience or coping with stress, you might say. Now, you have a background as well in, is it psychotherapy? Yeah, cognitive behavioral psychotherapy. So tell me a little bit, like I wanna, I'm going to bounce around a little bit and then we'll start to get it focused because I want to hear about some of the things that you've done, some of the work you've done. Now, we talk about cognitive behavioral th- 
therapy, CBT, I think it's referred to. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And so how did you go from stoicism to that or was it the other way around or did they just kind of come together naturally? Hmm. It's kind of round about, I guess the stoicism kind of came first slightly, but it was around about the same time. So cut a long story short, I, I was at university and I was kind of looking at uh, finding a philosophy of life. And uh, I wanted to do something like therapy to help people. So I was reading Freud and Jung and all that. And I wanted to understand life, the universe and everything. So I was studying philosophy and also history of Indian religions. And I wanted to improve myself. So I was doing meditation and learning about self-hypnosis and other self-improvement psychological techniques. And I was reading a lot lot of books all over the place, you know, like a, a, a kind of nerdy teenager or whatever. I was completely immersed in all these subjects. And uh, I, I couldn't quite find something that really clicked. It was, getting, it was actually getting quite complicated. I was studying existentialism, and I thought, this is kind of related to therapy, but it's getting really complicated, this stuff. It seems quite abstract. And so, you know, how useful can it be if it takes hours and hours and hours to try and explain it to anybody? And then I basically stumbled across uh, Pierre Hadot, a French uh, scholar's writings, and I read uh, one of his books, and then I read, you know, when you really listen to a, a band, you listen to one of their albums, and you immediately go out and buy all the rest of their albums, yeah. right? Yeah. So I just went straight out and got the rest of his books. I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to read everything that this guy's done. And he's got a book called What is Ancient Philosophy, one called Philosophy as a Way of Life, and one called The Inner Citadel, which is about the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. And Hado surveyed all the literature of ancient philosophy, did an excellent job of it. And he identified what he called spiritual exercises. So he wanted to prove that ancient philosophy was like a Western yoga, almost consisted of these uh, lifestyle practices and psychological techniques that had kind of been ignored until he came along, that it wasn't just theoretical, it was a practice. And so he compared it to Christian spiritual exercises, particularly in the writings of St. Ignatius of Loyola, I thought this is great. So, like, this is like a Western version of Buddhism or something like that. And so, I've got my kind of meditation techniques and stuff here, and I've got my kind of Socratic uh, philosophy, my Western philosophy here. These two things came together. Uh, but then it was immediately obvious to me that what he called a spiritual exercise, I would have called a psychological technique. And they resembled techniques that we use in modern psychotherapy. And it amazed me that Hado at no point ever even mentions this. Because I guess he just thought, that's not my field. So he didn't get involved with it. So sometimes books write themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So as a recent graduate, I've done my philosophy degree. I thought, this book's writing. This book will write itself. Like, all I have to do is take all the stuff Hado has done and then just kind of talk about how it relates to modern psychotherapy. It's like a no-brainer. And so I did that, and that was uh, my kind of my first book, actually my second book, but that was one of the first books that I wrote was The Philosophy of CBT, and I identified 18 separate psychological strategies in ancient philosophical literature, mainly in Stoicism. And I realized that Hado said it was mainly the Stoics, not only the Stoics, but mainly the Stoics that really excelled in this kind of therapeutic practice uh, of Stoicism. And then also I realized I had been training in many different forms of psychotherapy, but mainly I'd studied psychoanalytic, psychodynamic therapy. And then I completely went through a conversion and I got into cognitive behavioral therapy. And I I realized that cognitive behavioral therapists 
again, to cut a bit of a long story short, were, were well known for quoting a famous passage from Epictetus, this Roman Stoic philosopher. And it says, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about things. And one of the pioneers of cognitive therapy in particular, a New York psychotherapist called Albert Ellis, taught that to virtually all of his clients, taught it to almost all of his students. And uh, he must quote that in virtually all of the many books that he wrote on the subject. And he says a bunch of other things about the Stoics as well. So this isn't a small thing because that quote is his attempt to express in plain English something that we call the cognitive theory of emotion. It's the central theoretical premise, the foundation on which the whole of cognitive therapy is basically built, right? So it's the cornerstone of the whole thing. And it's virtually identical to something the Stoics said. In fact, they explained it by using a quote from the Stoics. And I thought, this is great. I've got meditation techniques. I've got Socratic philosophy. I've got a connection to psychotherapy. And the first thing, rather lazily, that crossed my mind was I thought, I'm not going to have to read as many books anymore. Like, I could just read Seneca, like, and that's it. It covers all of these things. Like, it's going to be a piece of cake. I'm sorry. I'll just read Seneca, Marcus Aurelius. That's all I need to bother with. It kind of ticks all of the boxes now. And, uh, and then I guess the next thing I thought is, these cognitive behavioral therapists, they must be really into stoicism. They call it the, the, um, the original philosophical inspiration for their method. And then I quickly realized that maybe some of them had read Marcus Aurelius, but generally cognitive psychotherapists had zero interest in stoicism. They all knew this one quote, and that's pretty much all they, they knew generally, uh, the majority of them, but it was really odd. It's like someone going, I really love this song by this band. And then you think, well, how come you've never listened to any of their albums? Like, you kind of naturally go and check out their other stuff as well, then, if that's your favourite song, like, eventually. But they don't. They're too busy doing other things. So I wrote a book aimed at them, like, to try and uh, expound the connection. And then to my surprise and to my, my, I guess my publisher had mixed feelings about this. Um, none of them read it. But... A, a large lay audience read it, like uh, a bunch of uh, the general public read this academic text that was meant really for, for psychotherapists. And to this day, and this is like maybe 15 years later, these psychotherapists in general are still pretty apathetic about stoicism. But the weird thing is they're starting to get more into it. And I'll tell you the ironic reason why, because their clients come into their sessions and they say, I've been reading this book by Ryan Holiday. Mm. Like, oh, but this thing called Stoicism. I listened to a podcast about it yesterday. And they get talking to a therapist. And now the therapists are thinking, geez, maybe I should read some books on this thing then. Because the clients know more about it than I do. So it's, it's strange how it evolved. The interest among the general public out, outpaced the interest among therapists. But now the therapists need to catch up with that. Well, it's it's interesting around stoicism. You know, I, I think I started kind of really paying attention to it three or four years ago. And to your point, you know, that one phrase, which is, you know, I don't know the exact phrase, but it's really it's it's not what happens to us; it's uh, our perception of what happens to us. I think is is, is that fairly accurate or close I'm, enough? I'm, close enough. Well, we call it. You know, I think you refer to it. You know, as cognitive dissonance is the same. Is, is that disconnect, is, is looking at it differently and then disconnecting from it emotionally going, it's not the event, it's my perception of the event that's happening yeah. to me. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I mean, this is one of my hobby horses because I don't think the classicists that wrote about Stoicism actually understood what, what struck me. And I, 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 I mean, I, I love the, the literature on Stoicism by academic philosophers and classicists. I think it's great. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying this just to kind of, you know, promote my own perspective in contrast to theirs, but in all honesty, I really feel that they missed out a lot of things. There are a lot of things that they couldn't see that were in Socrates and in the Stoics because they're psychological and, and classicists and philosophers weren't interested in them or, or, or didn't really know what they were looking at. And so this concept of cognitive distancing, I've never really, none of them ever really mention it. Like, but it's quite explicitly there in the Stoics. And it's like, uh, you know, a big deal in modern psychotherapy. It's, there was a revolution in evidence-based... Yeah. But when we talk about cognitive dissonance, Donald, you know, there's, there's, there's an aspect of my understanding of it, which was cognitive dissonance, the way the Stoics and the way you explained it in your book. I loved your book, by the way, because it gave such great stories about Marcus Aurelius and the battles and how he lived his life and what he was doing, which was really, really great. And then you applied it, how you take that and apply it to your life, how you can be. And I thought that was amazing in that, in that context, the way you did that. But when we look at cognitive dissonance, I was actually under the belief that cognitive dissonance was something that people did kind of subconsciously is the way they were able to disconnect from the reality. So in other words, cognitive dissonance in the example that I think I was once given was it's knowing that smoking will kill you or could kill you, you know, from a health perspective and denying it. It's like ignoring it. It's, it's, it's a dislocation from the reality of, of smoking. That was dissonance. But what you're saying is stoics do it on purpose. Like it's like a very, it's a, it's a practice. No, we're speaking across properties. Those are two different things. Okay, in great. Thanks for clearing that right. up. <laughs> right. So it's also my accent, maybe, right? So <laughs> no, no, no. I got this. Talk- this is my own interpretation of cognitive dissonance. So then, this is you're talking about cognitive dissonance, yes. right? And we're talking. I like we're talking in stoicism about something called cognitive distancing. Distancing. Okay, there you go. The, the two right, totally different things. Right. So they are two different things. Yeah, got and it. It's a, it's, a, it's a tricky concept, right? It's a it concept is a tricky that, concept, yeah. Okay, sorry about it, that. I love it. That's all right. Like, um, and maybe I should explain. I can, I can kind of explain it. Uh, you'll understand when I explain it that, in a sense, it's a simple concept, but it's one that a lot of people wouldn't instinctively understand. So, and this is why. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's about something that we are normally blind to, the West is the way I would describe it, right? So I might look around me and say this table is made of wood. It's big. It's small. The fan on my desk is made of metal, right? And those are objective descriptions about physical properties. I might turn around and go, that guy's an asshole, if you'll forgive my English. Mm-hmm. Like, this job is a complete disaster, right? Those aren't descriptions of objective properties. Those are evaluative statements, but they sound the same grammatically, right? It sounds like I'm saying he's tall, he's short, he's an asshole. Why, you know, like this job is long, like, uh, you know, it's, uh, a lot of people are involved. Like it's a, disaster, it's a catastrophe, it's a disaster. Those are value judgments. They don't describe the external event itself objectively. They're really, they're more an expression of something that I'm imposing on things like my judgment that it's negative. And there's a kind of arbitrariness about it. Like, first of all, because someone else might come along and think, but I don't see him as a, a jerk or an asshole or an idiot or whatever. Or, but also I, in the future, might look back on the job and not see it as a catastrophe. 
I might see it as an opportunity, I'll springboard onto other things, right? So I might, the properties, the physical properties of the thing might be identical, but I would have a different value judgment about it now than I do in the future. Mm. Or someone else looking at exactly the same thing might have a, a different judgment about it. And the way that Aaron Beck, the founder of cognitive therapy, that came a little bit after Ellis, used to describe it to clients, is he'd say, imagine you're wearing rose-tinted glasses and you look around and you think, that guy's pink. The, that house over there is pink. Um, the neighbor's cat is pink. And then someone comes along, because you've been wearing these glasses so long, you just think those things are pink. That's what they look like. And then uh, someone knocks your glasses off, let's say, and you realize that that wasn't the color of the objects. It was the color of the lens through which you were looking, mm-hmm. right? In the same way, you could be wearing catastrophic colored glasses like, or, you know, idiot, like asshole colored glasses like, that tint the, your perception of other people. It's the value judgment of the lens, looking at the world through catastrophic lenses, and you can take them off and put on different lenses. There's a kind of arbitrariness to it. And cognitive distancing specifically is the term that Beck introduced. He derives it from somewhere else, but he introduced it to cognitive therapy to refer to the ability to separate or distance our value judgments or other types of thoughts from external the external events which they describe, right? So Beck's way of describing that is to say, in cognitive therapy, the, the main technique is to ask the client, where's the evidence for that? So everybody likes me, nobody, you know, nobody likes me, everybody, everybody hates me, a depressed client might say, that's a schoolyard rhyme, by the way, in the, in the UK, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I think I'll go and eat worms. <laughs> right? But that might be kind of negative beliefs that, that a depressed person might have. And a cognitive therapist might say, well, where's the evidence that nobody likes you? Where's the evidence that everybody hates you? Let's quest critically evaluate these beliefs. And Beck says, but before you can even begin doing that, the client has to be able to view that statement as if it were a hypothesis up for debate. And if they view it as a fact, like it's nobody likes me, I'm just describing, calling it as a seer. That's a fact, buddy. Like, you're not going to be able to get them to weigh the evidence for it, right? They'd need to separate it and start viewing it as a a hypothesis that they're making about external events. And when we look through our glasses for so long that we confuse it with reality, we call that fusion often in therapy. Like, so our value judgments, our beliefs are so blended with external events, we can't even tell the difference. There's no separation between them. And the Stoics think, look, the most important thing we have to do is to separate these thoughts, beliefs, and value judgments from external events so that we can take more responsibility for them and so that we can begin evaluating them properly. And I would say that's, to me, that's probably the main psychological technique. So when Epictetus says it's not events that upset us, but our opinions about them, in that very statement itself, he's encouraging us to... Uh, not to say this is an upsetting event. He's saying, no, you're having upsetting thoughts about the event. Right? So he's encouraging us to separate the thoughts from the event and take more responsibility for them. And that's the beginning of therapy. But here's the bombshell, like a lot of people wouldn't know about. Like, but psychotherapists would take this for granted. So modern psychotherapy is very much research-driven, right? At least in the cognitive behavioral field, particularly in the UK, it's evidence-based. Like it's research driven. 
And over the past 15, 20 years or so, there's uh, been a revolution, like uh, a culture shift in evidence-based psychotherapy, which we call the, the third wave of, of modern cognitive behavioral therapy. And so a team of researchers, one of the things that led to this is they said, you know this cognitive distancing thing that Beck does, where he's got a few techniques to help clients view their beliefs as hypotheses rather than facts. You know, what happens if you just do that and you don't bother doing any of the, where's the evidence for that, any of the other cognitive stuff? And so they call that comprehensive distancing. They say, what happens if you just do a lot more of that? And what they found was it works really well. But also, because it's only one thing, like evaluating evidence can get complicated. Like, which belief are you evaluating? How are you evaluating the evidence? You can get lost in the weeds with some, some clients, right? It's also hard to do with a whole group of people. It's easier if you have someone one-to-one. -one. Whereas you can teach cognitive distancing to a group of people pretty easily. Like, it's a skill why and uh, you know it, it's not difficult uh, to do there now there are maybe half a dozen or more pretty common techniques that we know help people to to make that separation and one of them i'll share because only literally only takes a minute we don't find this one in stoicism incidentally but at the start of the 20th century there was a psychologist called titchener who discovered that when people repeat a word rapidly for a long period of time, it starts to they start to experience it differently. So they, they it changes their experience of the meaning of the word or phrase. And people thought, that's weird, kind of interesting. I don't know what we do with that. But psychologists love things like that because they think there must be something we can do with that, right? Well, Tishner didn't realize that, but actually it's a very powerful tool in therapy. So if somebody says, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, like you imagine them thinking that and becoming completely absorbed in what it means. So they're not thinking about the words. They're not thinking about the way they're saying it, how often they say it, how long they, they're just thinking about the idea, maybe no, like, like as if it's a fact, as if they've been looking through the tinted spectacles so long, that's just how they think reality is. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me. That's their worldview, right? So we would say, what happens if you repeat it out loud rapidly for one minute? So they go, nobody likes me, nobody hates me, 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 nobody likes me, nobody hates me. And so what you realize is after about 15 seconds, it becomes kind of annoying to do that. And it's hard, your lips become kind of rubbery and it's hard to form the words. So to do it for a whole minute, for a minute is nothing. But to do it for a whole minute is actually annoying like you'd only do that if a therapist was beside you going keep going keep going like but when people do it about 90 percent of them 90 95 percent of them report this phenomenon that they go well now i'm much more aware of the the way that i'm using the phrase and so i'm thinking now about the fact that i'm saying this rather than just fusing it with reality and when you do that it it dilutes the emotional effect and it also increases what we call cognitive flexibility which is their ability to think I get that I could look at life that way but I can also imagine looking at it in a different perspective or another perspective or other people might see it differently so this ability to entertain multiple perspectives at once seems to be related to emotional resilience right so not being completely wedded to one perspective but I guess I could look at it like that or I might choose to look at it differently 
You know, it's just one way of interpreting things. That makes people more flexible, more emotionally resilient. But if they think, no, it's a fact, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I think we're going to eat worms. That's now a worldview that they're locked into. There may be a very dark, depressing worldview to be stuck in for decades, perhaps. Right, so we're trying to get people unstuck. So repeating the word, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, the word or the phrase, and until you become more aware of the process, I would compare it just to wrap that up. I said earlier about the glasses. Imagine, I just thought of this other day. If you took those rose-tinted glasses and you wiggled them a lot, like someone wiggled them in front of your eyes for a minute, then after a while, that would get kind of annoying. And you now you'd become much more aware of that there's glass in front of your eyes, right? And you'd notice that you're looking through colored glass rather than just fusing it with reality. And in the same way that you become aware of the words, you become aware of the lenses. But, you know, we have a natural tendency to look through the words, to look through the lenses. And it's hard. It's kind of like form of hypnosis in a way. We, it, we need a, a gimmick, a trick to help us snap out of that. Like, otherwise, it's like we're, you know, caught in a lobster trap. You know, I, I love the way that you've taken CBT and, and, and linked it to stoicism. And actually, in your book, it really opened up a, a different view of stoicism and, and the world for me. It's like, you know, it helped change the filter now. But here's something interesting about what you're talking about right now. First off, there's an assumption in that case, I think, that people are actually looking for an answer. They're actually searching. They're they're willing to acknowledge that there is a filter. Now, I know in behavioral therapy, I'm sure that there's there's all sorts of methodology for getting people to see that. But let's let's I'd like to bring it forward, Donald. In 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 the study of stoicism, there's a couple things that stand out for me. You know, it, it, I, I think there's always one thing. What can we control? Okay. That's, that for me is one of the most, um, I don't know what the word is. It, it, it's a release of shit that's happening, right? It's like, okay, what can I control? I can't control any of this. All I can control really is my reaction to it. That creates that cognitive distance that you talk about, right? And that's kind of cool. But, you know, let's talk about, you know, briefly what's going on in terms of COVID and the pandemic and people's view of it. Right now, I'm sure that you see it as much as anybody does, the polarization of it's real, it's not real, there is a pandemic, there's not, it's a pandemic, it's all conspiracy or no, it's real. But it's very polarizing. And, and on either side of that, uh-huh. people are looking through a set of filters that they're convinced are real. Like, I, I know... You know, like somebody is claiming, I know this is real. I know I'm going to die. Everybody's going, it's all bullshit. It's all, uh, you know, it's it's all a conspiracy. You know, the elites are going to rule the world. And so this, you know, mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine. So I'm looking at it and I'm observing it because that's what I do. And I'm looking at how polarizing it is. And, and, and in my practice of leadership, I'm, I'm going, okay, how do I disconnect from that and just be the observer of it uh-huh. and not be drawn down that vortex of negativity? Because on both sides, it's it's really dark. Uh-huh. Well, I, yeah, I'm going to take two positions on this, right? Yeah. And the first one is as somebody who's committed to evidence-based practice and research-driven practice in public health. And what I'm going to say is that there's a small minority of people, I think, that believe that uh, the pandemic is a hoax. And I don't know of a single credible scientific expert that would say that it's a hoax. And in general, I think people have been confused by political propaganda, misinformation on social media. And so it's been a public health disaster, actually. I used to be a fellow of the Royal Society of Public Health, by the way, something I believe passionately in evidence-based public health information. 
And, and that's been a disaster. Like people have got a lot of, partly because the internet, partly because of politicians getting involved with it and using it as a political football. The best advice I can give to people about that, whenever I discuss these subjects with people, they'll send me articles from Fox News or CNN or Breitbart or whatever. And anyone that works in medicine or health research, I'm sure we tell people exactly the same thing, which is that uh, information about medical issues, health issues that you get from news outlets that have a political agenda, whether it's left or right, it's almost always unreliable. Mm -hmm. like, you need to, to question it because invariably they do something that researchers call cherry picking. Right. So they'll look sure. for little bits of information that support the political agenda. Yeah. Yeah. So no credible epidemiologist or public health expert would say that you can trust like, the information that comes out. And sadly, that's spiraled out of control in America in particular mm -hmm. recently. Um, so the idea that it's a hoax is something I would actually challenge directly. And I would, I would refer people towards the, the more reliable sources of scientific information rather than the the, the mainstream media. but And I get all that, by the way. But my question, I guess, really is, Donald, is that in the practice of stoicism, you know, we we, we have the world that's in. It's, it. The world's divided in many different ways. It just happens to... There's lots of issues, by the way. I mean, this just happens to be one that's in our... You know, we're, we're living through right now. But in the practice of stoicism, you know, when people are stepping back and, and looking at what's going on, because stoicism and... And Marcus Aurelius and his meditations, this is all about self-reflection. This is about being the best you can be, or or I don't know what the, you know, what how you would describe stoicism. So when we try and apply that to today, you know, how are you how are you engaging people to say, here's why you want to consider stoicism in your life? I mean, you use you use examples in your book and how to apply it. Yeah. What's your view of that? Well, you know, look, actually, these two things are related. This is, I said that I had two positions on this. The, the other position that I would say is, weirdly, there's a quote in Marcus Aurelius' meditations. Okay, a couple of connected things here. Like, they'll all come together in a moment, you'll see. So, <laughs> okay. They, uh, first of all, we should mention that apart from the fact that Socrates also lived through the Athenian plague, and that's a, an important part of his story, Max Aurelius lived through a, a huge pandemic and wrote, you, you could almost, at a push, mm -hmm. see the meditations of Max Aurelius as a psychological coping strategy for dealing with the impact of a pandemic. He wrote it in the middle of a pandemic that was much longer and much more severe than the one that we are currently living through. Five million people, it's estimated, died in the Mediterranean region alone during the, the Antimine plague. And, and, and Donald, just to give people, listeners, a, a perspective, of the, he lived through that pandemic. But let's talk about, I mean, Marcus Aurelius was, was what, 180 or 130 AD? I mean, this is like in a time where... There's nothing. I mean, it's kind of, there's no medical anything. There's just no. dealing with what it is. I mean, they were smart enough to figure out that uh, some of them, some of the physicians, uh, was, well, they were smart people. They just didn't have microscopes. Mm -hmm. thought, right. So they, uh, technology. So they, they were smart enough to figure out that they thought it might be somehow transmitted in the air mm. because they noticed that the, the pustules that appeared, big, typically appeared first at the back of the throat. And uh, so they thought maybe the infection then is, is spread through the air that we're breathing in, and that's why it starts in the windpipe and stuff, right? It's pretty clever. 
So what they did then, well, they had no idea how to treat it. So they would mainly sacrifice to the gods and burn incense to try and purify the air. Neither of those two things did anything. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. Sadly, right? But you're like, oh, dude, you were getting there. And then you're like, oh, this is the best solution we can come up with. So they had no idea. And no, there were many social problems that, that went along with the plague. But uh, nevertheless, Marcus Aurelius says, he only mentions the plague once in the meditations, and he says something paradoxical about it. He says, uh, terrible uh, though the Antonine plague is, the, the corruption in the air, actually, he mentions, he says, so terrible as this plague, the corruption in the air is, uh, he goes, there's, a, there's an even more serious plague uh, that, that, that takes the form of corruption in men's souls. Here's a can of worms. So I thought that's a slight. That's at first that seemed like a slightly callous thing to me, and then more and more I started to agree with him. And I, when I looked at what's happening in America at the moment, I started to feel for two reasons. First of all, pandemics aren't caused by viruses. I hate to break it. That may be a popular, like a paradoxical statement. Pandemics are caused by people. Mm. Like if everybody, like Pascal once said, just stayed home, like theoretically that may be impossible in practice. Like the virus would die off. Like pandemics are caused by human behavior, my friends. Like by international travel, by like mixing in groups of people and they're breathing each other's air and so on. It's human behavior like that causes the pandemic by spread, spreading the virus. Mm. So that's driven by our attitudes towards it and our values, like other factors. But the second thing is you see the anger, uh, the bitterness, the political bias, the propaganda. Like, these problems make the whole situation worse. We're seeing a pandemic, I believe, of, of anger and outrage mm. in, in modern society. You just need to look at the internet. You know, you look at uh, YouTube comments, like that black hole, like in a yeah. lot of videos, you know, and the stuff, the horrendous stuff that, that, that people, stream of abuse that, like, that people post online, the people that just go around like trolling and abusing and provoking, um, and the divisiveness of it all. You know, and that, there are many things that the Stoics tell us about this. The Stoics thought that one of the biggest problems is anger, fundamentally. Like, they thought it's toxic and deeply problematic. Like, and we need to apply philosophy and philosophical therapy to the problem of anger. And I think that at the present moment, that's glaringly obvious that, uh, you know, the, the pandemic virus is made worse by human behavior and it's being made worse by divisiveness and anger and that the pandemic of anger like uh, is spiraling so far out of control in society in general uh, if nothing else it's going to go on much longer even in the current by the way the current pandemic's going to go on in my view longer than many people assume like but uh, the pandemic of anger affects uh, our souls affects our society is going to go on indefinitely unless we do something about it and start to, to think differently, view things differently and interact with other people differently. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, for people to think differently, they have to look outside of their sphere of influence and their sphere of reading or their sphere of study. I mean, that for me, that's why stoicism was really kind of powerful in the thought process because it goes back to even anger in 125 AD 
what people still were bitchy and pissed off and killing each other and doing all the things like so you know it is human nature to be that way and then you still see back then that marcus aurelius or even further back you know socrates or aristotle i mean the study of human nature we haven't really changed as much as we think we've evolved have we really evolved in our thinking and who we're being as people and and marcus wanted to be an amazing leader i is is my impression of it i mean he he's an emperor he's got huge responsibilities yet you know he's got a you know his life's a shit show too like he's got stuff going on that he's dealing with and i think it's really interesting that nothing's changed but is a, a, but the commitment of people to be better than they are to actually realize that they're looking through a set of filters now that comes from a a relatively sane brain i mean if you're in it and you're like upside down you know, and you don't know that you're looking through that set of filters if you're convinced whatever's going on is real. So I keep coming back to the stoicism and the practice of leadership. Do you, do you, when you, when you're doing the work and when you're teaching, cause you do lots of courses and you do lots of, uh, of working with, uh, I think corporate clients or with leaders, you know, what is, is there a grounding? Is there a place where you, you know, give a definition to stoicism for people to understand why it's a, a great tool. The study of stoicism is a good tool to to be a better leader. To be well, just to you know, to look at your life differently. Yeah, sure. Like the, the Stoics lived in uh, in the ancient world uh, historically. That was prior to the, the the division of different disciplines that happened progressively over time, um, particularly in the in the modern era. And uh, so, for instance, my discipline, psychotherapy, was never a separate subject from philosophy in the past. So theology, philosophy, logic, psychotherapy were all considered to be part of the same field. And so division of labor leads to specialization. It's good in some ways, but it's also bad in other ways because we kind of lose sight of the bigger picture. Like we, we, we kind of falsify things and distort them when we rip them apart. Artificially, we gain a lot by recombining philosophy and psychotherapy. And in the same way, in the ancient world, they thought ethics, psychotherapy, uh, and politics, a study of which would you know, cover the study of leadership qualities for them, are all part of the same thing. Like they're just intertwined. And I think that the, the tendency over time to separate and divide these things, there are pros and cons to doing that. And there are advantages to putting some of them back, to putting some of the Humpty Dumpty pieces back together again. So one would be, I don't think there's any point being a leader uh, unless it improves you as well as benefiting mm-hmm. by the, the people that you're leading. Yeah. And so I think any uh, concept of leadership has to somehow be related to what the ancients called virtue ethics, mm-hmm. which is their moral philosophy of self-improvement and then the therapeutic dimension of that. So we need to lead in a way that makes us better human beings as well as improving the people around us. And from that perspective, it's not a big surprise that the Stoics are going to say, in a nutshell, like that the key to leadership is to lead by example. And the key to leading to example is by improving your own character. So that's essentially, you know, the approach that they would adopt. And uh, Marcus Aurelius very much, uh, that's part of his mentality and his, his concept of what it means to be a Roman emperor is shaped by that virtue ethic philosophy. In your book, um, Donald, you talk about, Marcus Aurelius talks about values, core values. 
Now, are the core values that he's referring to or you refer to in your book, is that really about those virtuous values, though, or are, are those the core values you're talking about is about virtue, moral standards? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the Stoic values are kind of abstract in a way. Um, so they're, the idea is that most people would arrive at, at similar values. And funnily enough, we, we, we find that supported empirically. Like, I mean, it's strange because it was Aristotle who said that fire burns the same in Athens as it does in Persia, but men's values differ from one place to another. And that's half true and half false. Because people's values, when it comes to applying moral principles to concrete situations, vary quite a lot. Like their ideas about marriage and what so an appropriate diet, how to interact with other people, the specifics vary. But if you dig deeper, like most people value integrity, honesty. Like you know, most people uh, think it's it's immoral to to harm other people unnecessarily. Like the abstract or the concrete or the moral preconceptions like at the, at the foundation are pretty similar across cultures. And, and modern research substantiates that. So, you know, the, the Stoics believed that. They thought, look, most people like think that courage is a good thing. Like most people fundamentally, whether they're in Persia or Rome or Greece, like think that it's important to have some kind of self discipline or self-control in life and they admire people that exhibit that quality like most people think that kindness and fairness are admirable qualities in themselves and, and others and moral wisdom like you know there's nobody really that, there are very few people it'd be an exception for somebody to think that stupidity is a virtue right <laughs> there's not many cultures that value that we gen- like basically we can agree on these abstract things although we might disagree about the specifics and the stoics thought actually Agreeing on more the you know the, the the fundamentals of moral virtue is more important than people realize, because once you become committed to developing those virtues, it has implications for the way that you would interact with external things. You would place if you believe that those general virtues, justice, however you interpret it, courage, however you interpret it, if you believe that those are fundamentally important, why they're intrinsically good. If you, in fact, if you, if you go as far as the Stoics and say they're incomparably good, like they're, uh, in a sense, the only true good, then you would place less intrinsic value on wealth, reputation, and external things like that. Let me tell you a little story. Um, I, 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 this is how I would explain Stoicism, actually. I think it, it helps. The Stoics were Socratic philosophers. Like they, they don't give as many detailed arguments for their position. And the reason they don't is because it's already been done. Socrates already provide much more elaborate arguments. And in particular, in one of the Platonic dialogues called the Euthydemus, Socrates presents the following argument, and he refers to it again in Plato's Apology. It's one of the most famous and most widely read philosophical texts in antiquity. So Socrates is talking to one of his friends in the Euthydemus, and uh, he says, how would you define good fortune? Now, Socrates usually begins with a no-brainer question, and this is also why modern readers often give up after the first 10 pages or so. They think, well, this is banal. Like, what's good fortune? The guy says, well, wealth, noble birth, health, like uh, good looks, fitness, like uh, having uh, status in society, uh, stuff like that, right? I mean, nobody's going to argue about that, are they, Socrates? And then to cut a long story short, Socrates says, well, let's pick these things one at a time, right? 
So he says wealth. Um, wealth, for sure, seems good if you give it to somebody who's wise and virtuous. Then they could do more good stuff with it. What happens if you give wealth to a vicious tyrant? Like, like uh, people joke about coffee. It allows you to do stupid things more quickly and with more energy. You know, if you give a, a genocidal tyrant a lot of wealth, it just allows them to do more vicious and foolish things, right? So Socrates says, surely the value of these external things, the value of wealth, depends on who's using it. Like, in the hands of someone wise and good, that allows them to do more wise and good things. And in the hands of someone foolish and vicious, that allows them to do more foolish and vicious things. And he then argues that this applies to all of the other external goods, right? And so his conclusion is that these things, although some might be naturally preferred over others, are, in a sense, morally neutral or indifferent. And the only truly good thing is the moral wisdom and virtue required to make good use of them. And the only truly bad thing is the moral ignorance or vice that causes us to misuse these things or use them for evil. And that leads to the Stoics adopting this kind of hard line generation or two later, like, where they want to argue that virtue, arity, they call it, is the only true good. But then, as I said earlier, the consequence of that is that if you were to lose wealth or lose status, the things that people care about, you would be more able to endure that loss if in your heart of hearts you'd embraced a philosophy that says these things aren't intrinsically important in life anyway. What matters is whether I use them wisely or foolishly. I do a lot of coaching myself over the years. And, and when I look in and have conversations, because I'm, I'm a very values-driven, our life is a reflection of our values and, and understanding our values. Yet I talk, when I'm, when I'm working with people, often I ask, you know, what do you think you're, you know, if you could list your top, your highest values, they actually don't even have an answer to that question. It's like, well, I've never really thought about it. And, and yet they may have a dissatisfaction with what's going on in their life or they, well, they want to achieve more. There's always something missing. Yet the fundamental is they don't have a context for even what a value is and, and what their values are. Do, do you run across that? Do you see that? You know, yeah. <laughs> well, that's Socrates, very common. Yeah, it's very common, isn't it? Well, Socrates talks about, like, the Stoics and the Socrates knew this, right? They take it for granted that if you ask people what their values are, they well, go, I don't know. Like, and in modern therapy, can you imagine what happens if you ask someone with clinical depression what their values are? Like, in yeah. a consulting room, like, they they'll generally have no idea, like, in many cases. And actually, you know, one of the cutting-edge evidence-based treatments for depression we call it behavioral activation, places a lot of emphasis on values clarification. We have methods of value clarification that have evolved in modern psychotherapy since the 1970s and are, are referred to as Socratic. They're derived from the Socratic approach, interestingly. And so we, we know that that would be someone saying they don't know what their values are like, uh, they don't know what their values are. To me, that sounds like someone who you take to the gym and you get them to, to do press-ups or run on a treadmill, and they go, oh, that's difficult. I'm getting quite out of breath pretty quickly doing that. Like, and if you're a fitness instructor, you think, you should do more of those then, shouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Like, sure. you know, I'd probably do you a lot of good like, if you were to do a little bit more running. It sounds like you're kind of out of shape. So someone, that's what a therapist thinks when they hear someone go, I've got no idea what my values are. You think, oh, maybe you should work on that then. Like, you know, how different would your life be if you did have a clearer idea of it? Well, I guess my life would be different, right? So in, that happens all the time in the treatment of depression, right? And so you have to work with clients, help them to get the, clar the values clarification, ask them the right questions. It's kind of a gradual process. 
And we know that when people do that, it tends to improve their quality of life significantly, quite robustly. Um, because how can you be fulfilled in life if you don't know what your values are? You'd have no idea whether what you're doing is of any value or not from day to day. That's a horrible, toxic situation to, to potentially be in, right? Maybe not for some people, but for a lot of people. What worth? No wonder depressed people often say that they feel worthless. Like if they, they've got no idea what they attach worth to mm-hmm. like and couldn't do it. But Socrates early on spotted that when people say that, and he was right about this, that they're, um, people are riddled with paradox and contradiction. I don't know if you've noticed this, right? Like people are complicated. And, <laughs> yeah, people uh, are complicated. They are. They say one <laughs> thing and do another. And of course. Socrates spotted early on um, the Socratic method the famous Socratic method is called, in Greek, the Alenchus. And the Alenchus is the name that the Greeks gave to the method of cross-examining a witness in court. So Socrates used that method. This is means of doing philosophy, but he would cross-examine people about their moral values and their definition of courage, justice, the, the definition of virtue, and so on. And so what the Alenchic method does is expose contradictions. Right, in a number of different ways. And the goal of that would be to arrive at a point where you have greater consistency and integrity. So to put it another way, is it would prevent you from being hypocritical because by questioning, you would have thrashed out all the contradictions, all the hypocrisy. Like Socrates would say, hang on a minute, you said this, but now aren't you doing the opposite? Like, and some people find that really annoying, but some people, if they could endure it, come through it, out the other side, feeling a lot clearer, like a lot more whole and complete and consistent in their worldview. And uh, there are a number of ways that he does this, but one of them is to use something that we still do today in therapy called the double standard strategy, right? And it's very good for people who say that they don't know what their values are. It's the, the number one number one go-to uh, when people say, I don't know what my values are. So there are a couple of things you can do in response, but one is to ask them what, they, what qualities they admire in other people, mm-hmm. right? So the famous example of this, Socrates has a a student, his friend Xenophon said that one day I saw Socrates talking to a young man called Critobulus. He's about 15, right? And he's just becoming an adult legally in uh, Greek society. And he goes to Socrates and says, Socrates, can you introduce me to some friends? Like I want to network, we would say today, right? To, uh, To be introduced to society, to meet important people. And you know everybody, like weirdly, Although you're this weirdo in, in a Athenian society, somehow you know all the movers and shakers around here. Even though you look like a beggar, right? you can walk around barefoot and stuff, like weirdly you know all the politicians. So this guy's Critobulus, is uh, St. Socrates. And incidentally, he's the son of Socrates' childhood friend, uh, Crito. So he says, could you help me find good friends? And again, Socrates begins with this kind of banal, no-brainer line of questioning. He says, well, sure, no problem, buddy. Like, what qualities would you be looking for in an ideal friend? This reminds me of people uh, using dating sites and saying, what qualities am I looking for in the ideal partner? And sure. all this kind of stuff, right? So what qualities would you look for in the ideal friend? And they thrash it out. You know, if you were sick, I guess maybe they, they'd check up on you. You know, like if you needed money, maybe they'd give you a loan. You know, maybe they'd share some of your values and take an interest in your hobbies and yada, yada, yada. And, and, you know, so far, it's so, so banal. Right? This is the level at which most people have these conversations. 
And then Socrates, as he typically does, as he did in the Euthydemus as well, he kind of pulls the rug out from the, under the guy's feet and hits him with a real bombshell of a question. So just as they kind of seem to be on a roll here, Socrates says, uh, so Pretopolis, like, how many of these qualities do you possess yourself? And uh, the guy's stunned. Like, he's like, well, not many of them, to be honest. And Socrates says, well, do you not think maybe you're going about this whole thing back to front? He says, what do you mean? He says, well, you want me to introduce you to other people that have these qualities, right? As, and to match you up as being, you know, good friends, like, you know, prospective friends. He said, shouldn't you try and acquire the characteristics of a good friend yourself first? And then people will be falling over themselves to introduce you. That's the easy part. Like, you know, I, it's like having a product that sells itself or whatever. You know, otherwise we'd be lying to people. If you tell me you don't have any of the qualities of a good friend and yet you want me to introduce you to people, I'd be deceiving them. Whereas if you'd asked me, Socrates, how can I myself become an ideal friend? I would have been happy to help you with that. And then it would, you would naturally follow on from that, that you would be introduced to other people. And so then they begin to talk about how, now it's time to therapy. Like, now he says, well, you know, can you help me? Like, get some of these qualities that I described earlier. But the, the other fundamental point that Socrates is making is you already know what the qualities are that, that you should cultivate in your own character. It's a piece of cake for you to tell me what qualities you admire in other people. But for some reason, you have a blind spot, right? We all have this kind of blind spot. It's never occurred to you that you should actually cultivate those qualities yourself. And although that seems incredibly simple, most people are in the same situation. And also, you, you, the other trick is if you ask people what qualities they despise in others, then it's a no-brainer to say, well, does that mean that you admire the opposite? I hate liars. Doesn't that mean you admire honesty, right? And it's a bit then, is that a quality that you cultivate? And the other thing you can do is ask them about, for some reason, if you ask this as a general question, it's harder for people. But if you focus about different domains of life or relationships, um, say, well, what about, let's just focus on what roles do you have in life? You're a parent, you're a boss at work. Like, so what qualities would you admire in a good parent? What sort of parent do you want to be? Like, and usually then that's easier as a route to identify people's values if you focus on different aspects of their life in isolation in many cases. So there's a bunch of strategies that have been established over the past few decades that, that really help us a lot in clarifying people's values. But Socrates and the Stoics knew a lot of these. Well, that's the thing. They knew it all these years. You know, and I think for me in, in the game that I play in terms of coaching and supporting people to have that level of success or whatever they define success as in business or in real estate or, you know, my, my whole, you know, one of my own fundamental philosophies is, is that your life is a reflection of the, the values that you have, whether you're aware of them or not. So if you're dissatisfied with your life, if you're not feeling that you're a contribution or that you have significance or what it is, then you got to become aware of what your values are because you're living them, whether you have an awareness of them or not. That's my own kind of belief system. Do you know who you sound like? I have no idea. <laughs> Heraclitus, <laughs> by one of the pre-Socratic philosophers, because he famously said, character is destiny. Mm-hmm. Like, and so what he meant in a way is your character, i.e. your values, like, and so on. Your, the virtues that you possess will be one of the main things that determine how your life goes. Mm-hmm. Like, your, you can say, you know, your values are your destiny. Character, character is destiny, he said. 
He summed up. Well, and I, and I and I believe that, and I don't believe that values don't shift over time. I mean, they do shift over time as we mature, as our families maybe change, as our things change. Our, our there's values that will shift and change. They never go away, but they where they sit in the list of priorities shifts and changes as we as we grow and as we evolve. You know, and then of course you get it. It gets all complicated because ego gets in the way, and then there's all sorts of societal things that you know fuck us up. There's all sorts of things that are going on in the conversation of values, and and I want to dig into it just because I think it's so important, and I see it in Marcus Aurelius. It was not so much what you do; it is really about who you are while you're doing it. You know, that's that's to me is I think that's it's not about what you do; it's who you're being. And and who you and and who you're being while well, you do what you do is kind of how I look at it. I think so. I think they were right. That's in, a, in the the essence of virtue ethics. It's more about our character. Our character is wedded to action, you know. But for instance, sometimes you're you're prevented from taking action, or um, so like I don't know. You might be like Socrates locked up in a cell. So there's a limited number of things you can actually do, right? Like, but you can still work on developing your character. You can still have integrity honesty, courage and stuff, even if you're chained up, right? But there may be a limited amount that you can do. There may also be that we, when we look at other people, we don't understand. Marcus really says this himself. You know, many things, many times people do do things for reasons that we don't understand. So when he was fighting the barbarian tribes across the northern frontier, like the Romans would be like, why do they keep raiding it? Like, and so Marcus would be like, maybe there are reasons that we don't. And you know, from their point of view, you know, they see us as the aggressor and so on. Like, you know, if we if we could step into their shoes for a minute, maybe we would understand why they're doing these things. Like, we might not agree with the actions that they're taking, like, but it might come nevertheless from a place, a sense of justice and courage, but how they're applying it in practice is perhaps misguided. It could be that these enemies we're fighting are perfectly honourable people, like, but, you know, we just disagree with the way that they're exhibiting that. Like, if we actually got to know them, we, we might admire them in some ways. And then um, these are these are some of the reasons we can never know. We can never step into and understand other people completely. And you know, our actions. Also, the Stoics would say we have to undertake action with what they call the reserve clause ourselves, because our actions can be thwarted. So you can try and act uh, with justice uh, and courage, but all you may encounter obstacles along the way that prevent you from achieving your external goals. So Seneca would say, if you're sailing across the sea, like you might say to yourself, I'm traveling to Egypt. Uh, I, I intend to travel to Egypt uh, if nothing prevents me or fate permitting. This is the, the Stoic Reserve Clause. They should always qualify every external goal with a little caveat that says, as long as I'm able to do it. Like, so they're pre- preparing in advance not to be shocked by, by failure. Like to think, I'll do my best, but success isn't guaranteed in, in any external things. And particularly when you're dealing with other people, say in education, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, you know? Mm-hmm. So Marcus Aurelius had this wayward son called Commodus. He was one of the worst emperors, right? So you could say, well, maybe Marcus did the best that he could to educate Commodus. You know, maybe he, he was as you know good a father as he could be um, with the knowledge and the opportunity that he had, but he's son you know still turned out to be a bad apple like he perhaps he failed for reasons that he didn't fully understand but he might nevertheless have acted with integrity and virtue uh, in dealing with his son you know it doesn't always guarantee success yeah you mentioned integrity a couple different times and and in the conversation around integrity 
I find time and time again that different people, people have a, a, an interesting definition of integrity. So from the Stoics point of view or from your point of view in a CBT, how do you define integrity? I think it's like, to me, integrity means acting consistently in accord with your genuine underlying values, your mm-hmm. core values. Mm-hmm. And, and ideally, the Stoic ideal would be that you, like, if you've gone through the fire of the Socratic method, like the, the, the absolute ideal would be to be free from hypocrisy and self-contradiction, um, that you've kind of basically thought through your attitude towards life and ironed out all of the little contradictions in it. So you're, you know, you have a, a clearer, uh, more consistent, more coherent worldview and set of values driving your actions. It's interesting that I find time and time again is that, you know, that, that and it, I think it's one, it's like a values conversation. Integrity is such an important conversation. And, and the misunderstanding, how that word is misunderstood and that the, the, you know, explaining to people, you can't, I can't be out of integrity with Donald. I can only ever be out of integrity with myself. And that's where the, the confusion is, is when somebody says, you know, he's, li- he's, he's, you know, he's out of integrity. He was lying to me. Well, okay, well, they're two different things. And yes, he could be out of integrity if he tells you I am not a liar. One of my highest values is not lying. But it's not really your judgment of that. It's actually, it has to be that individual's. Would that be kind of accurate in that statement, Donald? I think so. Yeah. Right? It's a complicated thing because it's it only we, we can have integrity in terms of what's under our control. Mm-hmm. Right? It relates to, to our actions, but many of our actions are directed towards other people. And actually, to come back to something we were talking about earlier, like, you know, one of the main ways that I think people lack integrity is when they apply what in cognitive therapy we call a double standard we work with all the time. So people uh, apply moral values or uh, standards of performance to other people that they don't apply to themselves. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's hypocrisy. It's a, a contradiction. Nevertheless, that's something they're doing. It's within their control. It's it's internal to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, you know, it's it's it just means that they're thinking. You know, they're thinking one way uh, when they look outward and another way when they look inward. And, you know, applying one standard here, another standard there. And the Stoics think that, in a sense, that weakens us. Like, you know, it's like a structure that's kind of fractured. You know, the, the mind of the fool, they would say, like, is riddled with these uh, these contradictions, like a, a structure that's unstable. They also compare it to, like, a butterfly that kind of flutters around. You know, they say the, the wise person, like, they say when you're in the presence of somebody who really has integrity and wisdom, it, it kind of feels like they're, you know, where you stand with them. And like, there's a kind of consistency, there's kind of constancy. They talk about the constancy of the ideal sage. It's how they often phrase it. Like, so they and the the Romans in particular would praise people who don't really who aren't fickle. Like, you know, like they don't change their attitude, don't change their behaviour just to please particular groups of people. They would treat um, the cleaning lady the same way that they would treat a celebrity. In a sense, you know, at some level, like the, the, you know, there are uh, there's an authenticity to them. Like they come across as as being genuine and true in every situation. And that's like almost like it's a high ideal. You meet people like that sometimes, and you know, it's always impressive. Who doesn't admire people like that, right? But uh, you know, the sweetest thing for many of us, it, it, it takes a lot of work to to get to that point where we remove these inconsistencies and that fickleness and, and contradictoriness from our character. 
Well, I think that's what, you know, you know, for myself, I think it's what it, I've learned those lessons where, it's, you know, and they're really tough lessons to learn when you get out of integrity with your values, when you start to go down a path, you know, ego takes you down a path or you're drawn down a path for, you know, off outside and you, you, you know, you go offside on your own values. It always comes back to bite you in the ass. And so I'm, I'm looking at the Stoics and I, and I really admire the fact that you think about what back in that time, you know, whether it be an Aristotle or a Socrates or years later, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius, having the awareness to live their values, to take a stand for those values in a time when, you know, you're a freaking emperor. I mean, you got anything you want as an example, you you know, and to, to, to stand for that is pretty epic. And I know that he wasn't perfect and he talks about that and he he's far from that, but ultimately, when you look at the satisfaction you have in life and what it is that you want, that you you've got to be there. He did some pretty epic things. Like he, uh, I'll tell you two things about Marx Aurelius. Okay, the the first thing is, and by the way, I'll qualify this by the way by saying something that we have to take for granted, which is that unless we have a time machine, we can't go back. We, you know, we have to go back and check things. Like we only have histories, and they're not one hundred percent reliable. So we have these stories. Like, so we, we kind of trust a lot of it, but there's other bits that might be less reliable. But we're told by Cassius Dio, one of the more reliable historians, a speech that Marcus Aurelius made. And that it seems like a very odd speech. Some historians have questioned it. But then there's this argument from silence that says, oh, surely other authors would have said Cassius Dio wrote this completely preposterous thing that Marcus Aurelius never said. And nobody in, in history ever appears to question it. Everyone seems to agree that, that Marcus was this wise, just emperor. That, that there aren't any voices really disputing that in, in any of the, the, the surviving literature. But there are for other Roman leaders. Like there, there's often you know, conflicting opinions about them, but, but not for Marcus. Like everyone seems to agree that he exemplified Stoic values. But in this speech, he does something really uh, quite remarkable he gives a speech saying that he's uh, he would be willing, among other remarkable things he says, he give the, he delivered the speech to the Roman legions in Serbia in the middle of the Marcomannic War, when the version of the civil war against him. And he says that uh, there's an uprising against him, another guy's declared himself emperor. Marcus said, uh, I would have been willing to step down as emperor appear voluntarily before a Senate hearing and answer the charges against me. He says, it's too late for that now, because they've already escalated this into a civil war. Like, but for the record, like, I would have been willing to step down as emperor and appear in front of a Senate hearing like, by my own volition. Now, that's a remarkable thing to say, right? People think of the Roman, we have this view of the Roman emperors as dictators, as autocrats. That's not how Marcus Aurelius ruled. Like he said that he ran all of his decisions past the Senate, past any major appointments he got Senate approval for. Like he had a co-emperor who ruled alongside him. So he very much believed in power sharing. Like he didn't believe in, in running the empire as an autocracy. And I think one of the most shocking things is this idea that he stood in front of the legions and said, I would have been willing to voluntarily resign office. Like, and testify in front of a hearing. Mm-hmm. That's a, that is not something that we would typically imagine a Roman emperor choosing to say, I think, anyway. So that, I, I would say that's a kind of an interesting example from the histories of him exhibiting moral integrity. 
right? He's willing to act in accord with his values and do what he believes to be the right and the honest thing, even if it means sacrificing his power and status. So I'd like to dig into, you've done this work for a lot of years. I mean, you're uh, dug into that psychotherapy and the, you know, you studied behavioral, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and you, why do you do what you do? Why, what, what lights you up about what you're doing? Like, cause you're a writer. I mean, you've written several books. You, you, you're a teacher, you're, you know, you, you have courses, you know, so that you're, you know, you're in education, you're doing a lot of things. So what is it about this given, you know, in the, in the context of stoicism and, and why you do what you do? Well, I guess I started off when I was a teenager, I wanted to, I remember thinking that my main goal was just to try and understand life and understand human psychology. I wanted to understand the world and understand people, like really simply. And I, it may be because there's a right, I mentioned in my book, like Marcus Aurelius, whose father passed away even earlier, his father passed away when Marcus was about three or four years old. I lost my father when I was about 13 or 14. And I, I think that left me looking around for a role model and a sense of direction and stuff like that, right? And so I started to read lots of books about religion and philosophy. Maybe that was my substitute for a father figure. I went and read Plato instead. And so I was kind of grasping around for mainly to, as a way of improving myself by finding some kind of direction in life. And, you know, I had, I felt I had some freedom uh, as a young guy. And I thought, well, what should I actually do? What's the goal here? Like we were saying earlier, I guess I was like one of these guys to say, I don't know what my values are. I don't know what my goals are. You know, what, what direction am I supposed to move in here? Like, you know, I need to make a decision about where my life is going. And so I started to read and study. And then um, I, I studied philosophy. And I, I remember at some point thinking, I want to be able to help other people as well. So I quickly associated philosophy with doing counselling and psychotherapy. And I, I wanted to pursue both of them. So, and also because I realized that by learning how to help other people, I would learn more about how to, to help myself. Um, Socrates said that as well. He said his main goal was to enlighten uh, and help himself, but he believed that one of the best ways to do that was, was by trying to help other people. Um, there are, I won't dig too deeply into that right now, but there are particular reasons, uh, there are interesting reasons why he believed that helping other people is one of the best ways to, to help yourself. It reminds me of something um, Benjamin Disraeli once said, that the best way to uh, learn about a subject is to, to write a book about it. rather Because normally we think the best way to learn about a subject is to read a book about it. And Disraeli, I think, and I've always believed this, said, no, if you write a book, you force yourself to read books but also to really consolidate the material and digest it and process it and remember it. Like reading books is passive. Like it goes in one ear and out the other, as it were, like to kind of mix metaphors or whatever. But, but I just really thought when you go to write a book, sure you do the reading and stuff as well. You've got to process it, you've got to create something. And that changes you. Mm -hmm. Like when you really have to digest it, it transforms you as a person. And I think helping other people forces you gets you out of the, the trap of rumination and introspection. So if you think life is all about personal development, the risk, and I see this with many of my clients, is you can end up just going around in circles in your own head. When you try to reach out and help other people in whatever way, 
like it, it gives you a certain amount of objectivity and uh, it makes the, the insights and the strategies that you're using appear more concrete. There's an opportunity to test things out in practice and also other people will, will help you to identify your own blind spots. I'll tell you a little, a quick anecdote. Galen, Marcus Aurelius' physician, tells this story in an, early, an old book on psychotherapy called On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passions. The ancient philosophers wrote books on psychotherapy. And so Galen says, Aesop, uh, who wrote the fables, said that everyone is born with two sacks hanging around their neck. And they said in front of their neck, they have this huge bulging sack and they can see it all the time. It's right under their nose and it contains everybody else's flaws. And they said they've also got like a little sack that hangs behind their head. And no matter where they look, they can never really kind of get an angle to see it. And that contains all of their own flaws. And what he was saying is essentially it's easy for us to fix other people's problems. Like it's easy for us to look at other people and tell you what they're doing wrong. But we really have this profound blind spot for our own character defects, our own mistaken assumptions. We don't know what we don't know, as it were. And then we kind of need other people to hold the mirror up to us sometimes. And one way we can get that is by going to coaching or going to therapy. But we also kind of get it in, in another way just by trying to help other people, by engaging and interacting with them. Like I say, it lends a certain amount of objectivity. It, it makes what we're doing more real. So I think we start wanting to improve ourselves and then we naturally want to help other people and then everybody benefits. Well, there's well, there was a fundamental, I don't know where it, where it applied, but it was like, learn one, do one, teach one. If you really want to learn something, you have to learn it, you have to do it, and then you ha and then teach it would, would, would make it more concrete, which is kind of like, but I, I really like the concept like, of, huh? of why you write a book, you know, is, is really, it gets it out. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that over the years that I've done all this work, I found that myself, you know, you said something that's really interesting. If you don't put it out there, it just becomes this internal dialogue, this conversation that's going around and around in your head. So that when you start to actually uh, put it out there, whether you're trying to teach it or you're having a conversation around it or you're journaling it, whatever that might be, it actually gets it out of that hard drive that is just a circular conversation with yourself. Well, it's, it's also, that's probably why I like doing podcasts. Because you might be reading a book and learning something and you think, this makes sense. I think it makes sense. It's kind of good. And then you, you might talk about it on a webinar or a podcast and people will just look at it. What are you talking about, buddy? Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't make any sense at all. And so that forces you to recalibrate. You know, people are frightened of making mistakes, you know, mm -hmm. I, I always think this is one of the most dangerous phobias, um, the, the, the fear of humiliation, the fear of negative evaluation. Judgment, yeah. Like, um, you know, but one of the most beneficial things is taking the risk of speaking out in public, sharing your opinions and allowing yourself to be... Marcus Aurelius, I wrote an article about this recently, actually. Marcus Aurelius talks about this idea of the virtue of being wrong. Epicurus said... In a philosophical debate where one person wins and another person loses, paradoxically, the person who loses the argument gains the most. Although everybody wants to win, like, but the person that loses actually gains the most. The person that wins doesn't really gain anything. Like, that's a very striking paradox. It is. He's right about that. Mm -hmm. But nobody wants to lose the argument. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to benefit like, by learning. You know, so be you... When people are anxious, I say, hey, well, so what if you, you make a mistake or somebody disagrees with you? That's how you learn. That's how you get your rough edges knocked off, right? So, and also some of the best ideas that I've ever had, I know over the years I've done a lot, a lot of teaching, 
without doubt, you know, uh, a lot of the best ideas I had were, came to me in mid-flow when I was standing in front of a class of students. I was trying to explain something and I go, oh yeah, I've just, like, what about this? What if I explain it this way? And then I'd go home and think, yeah, like, I'll write about that. Like, that's a really good metaphor or a really good analogy or something. And the students seem to, to respond to it. But, you know, you, there's a danger in writing and thinking in isolation that you just disappear out of your own backside, as people say, you know, and you, you lose perspective on things. So talking and teaching, teaching is one of the greatest opportunities between podcasts, broadcasting, publishing. Like, it helps keep things real. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because within the Real Estate Investment Network, which is that, you know, we're a national organization, we teach, we teach people how to invest in real estate. And, but we also know, you know, I've often said, you know, is that real estate doesn't fail us, we fail real estate and that we fail real estate in that it isn't what you do. It's not another how to tactic. It's who you're being while you do it. Understanding that to succeed in business or in real estate in the conversations that we have, you have to create an environment for it. You have to actually look at yourself and do that, you know, that self-reflection and the study of something. In this case, we're talking about stoicism is what builds resistance or resilience, sorry, resilience in business, in life, in, in actually being able to look at life through that lens and shift the lenses as, as you learn and as you discover what it takes to, to achieve the results that you want to achieve. And, and so that's why I've always thought that these you know, number one, I've always thought Rain, the real estate investment there is just like, I couldn't have a more ideal business in that I get to learn, I get to teach and coach, and and I get to support others in achieving, you know, what they want to do. And and I, as I speak to an author like yourself, I mean, you you put that out there. And that's really, I guess, ultimately what you're doing. You're being a contribution, which, and you get significance out of it. Those are, I think, a couple of traits that most people want. They want to make a difference. Is that a, a I think that's a kind of a fundamental of human nature is what we need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. The Stoics even say that. They say the wise man has an affinity for writing books that help other people. And, uh, you know, I think all of us, like, uh, want to learn, acquire wisdom and then share it with other people, you know, and uh, and learn more in the process of, of doing it. And uh, I was going to say the other thing about Marcus Aurelius I guess this came more obvious to me when I was writing the graphic novel as well. I tell people that I didn't realize this until we started to do the illustrations, that a lot of Marx's life, to me, the type of story, the genre changed a little bit for me. I thought, this chapter's more like a horror story. And I hadn't even realized, I hadn't thought about it like that before. But boy, when we try and visualize the Antonine Plague, and even also visualize some of the Roman battles and the way that they, they fought, a lot of it seems quite dark, it's, it's brutal, it's, you know, we can gloss over that, but when we see it drawn on the page on the movie screen, it becomes a, a little bit more vivid. And I realised actually something about Marcus by doing the, the graphic novel. Um, I, it, it struck me how precarious his life was. I hadn't fully appreciated that before, because you'll read or you'll mention that there was a plague, but then when you see it, you're like, oh, right, you're like, for all of these chapters... Like, and then this guy dies, and then that guy dies. Like, you know, like all these funerals that are happening around him. And then there's the risk of assassination and how close he is to like the, the enemy tribes that have slaughtered like a, a, whole, uh, like a whole legion of Romans earlier and killed an officer. Like, you know, he must at any point think, you know, he must have opened, Marcus Aurelius must have opened his eyes every morning and thought, am I still here? <laughs> 
no kidding. I say, yeah, yeah, no kidding. He was on. He was. He was in a a, um, a carriage with his co-emperor Lucius Verus, who was younger, ten years younger than him, and he was also like his Roman relationships are complicated. He was both his adoptive brother and his son-in-law, so he was kind of like a son to him. He married Marcus's daughter. Yeah. And uh, he's about 10 years younger. He was a fitter, more athletic guy. They they had him in mind to, to lead the army and Marcus was going to be the bureaucrat. Well, he killed over and died. Like, well, they were riding home in a carriage one day. He had a, a fainting spell, um, collapsed. He was sick for a few days and then he died, like possibly of the, the plague or some kind of stroke or something. And so, like, you know, Marcus saw people dropping dead around him. And, you know, the, the, there was a civil war against him. There were people that presumably uh, wanted to assassinate him. So in the meditations, when he talks about contemplating his own mortality, it's not an abstract theoretical thing. Like uh, on, a, on a, every night, I think, when he went to bed, he must have thought, I'm not 100% sure I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. Most of us complacently take, we can never know 100% sure, but like majority of us, like in the first half of life, at least, pretty much take that for granted that we're going to wake up tomorrow morning. But sometimes we don't. Like when you're in a dangerous situation and you close your eyes, you might think, "I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. Maybe this is it." <laughs> like, <laughs> True. You know, like so, Marcus. You know, I think must have been uh, thinking that. Now, you, you talked earlier about values, and I and I think one of the things that causes people, not all, not always, but often to reappraise their values as a brush with death. Mm. And many people have what's had important? brushes with death. What's important? Yeah, you realize what's important, yeah. right? How many people say, I suddenly realized what was important. I had a heart attack or something, you know, or I was in an accident, like, but I managed to you know, narrowly avoid dying. And, and I've just been like thinking now, well, I really think the pandemic, not for everybody, but for quite a lot of people, is a, a kind of philosophical stimulus. Like, uh, a lot of people have been sitting at home for months, you know, looking at the chaos that's happening around them. And maybe some of them have got sucked into the propaganda and the divisiveness and the confusion. Maybe some of them have been thinking, you know, maybe I should think, rethink what's important in life. And I'll tell you another reason that I think, and that's something else that maybe is fed into that. I used to live in Toronto, and uh, I'm still kind of part based in Toronto. I mean, I used to go around Toronto and look at all the restaurants and all the bars and things like that. And then they all closed down at the beginning of the pandemic and people were staying at home and stuff. And I used to think, geez, you know, when I was a young guy, we would go out for a meal in a restaurant like once every few months or something as a special treat. And now I know my friends go out two or three times a week and eat in expensive restaurants. Like we squander money on, on luxuries, right? Far more freely and so I think in part I've noticed that a lot of people staying at home have started to think in some ways and maybe I'm happier like I'm reading more books I'm listening to audiobooks or you know some people have started new fitness regimes not everybody yeah. but a lot of people have said to me I don't like some of the things that I've abandoned doing I don't think I'm going to go back to doing mm-hmm. you know like there have been people who say I used to go out for sushi three times I don't know if I really need to do that you know, like, uh, you know, like they've learned to cook. Uh, just a uh, simplicity, like, you know, they've learned to be more self-sufficient, maybe, and also to reappraise their values. Yeah, well, it goes back to that. I think that's a, you know, I think that's a really interesting point. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, people have to reevaluate and say, okay, well, what is, is this really, is my life 
you know, I'm looking at my life now and I'm going, am I really missing? Was I better, you know, was I happier back when I was going for sushi three nights a week or doing whatever I was doing, going to the clubs or whatever? Was I really happy? Is it really, you know? is it really, does it really make you happy? Yeah. I'll tell you what's interesting. If you look around bars and nightclubs, you know, this might vary depending what's happening. But when I was a young guy, I used to do that. I used to look around my favorite haunts at the faces of the patrons in the bar. Like, and I used to think, I don't like how many of these people actually really look as if they're that happy. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought, well, like, I thought everyone was coming here to have a good time and stuff like that. But, like, you know, actually, like, I don't know that there are people in this place. Are really well, that's, that. a, that's such a good point thought, because they're, they're in that environment. And what are they in there? They're in that environment, which is, you know, which is high in judgment, high in, you know, who you are and who you're trying to impress. So there's a lot of pressure being in that environment. So I don't know that makes people that much happier. I guess there's some place where they're, they're it, satisfies you know and anyway, i'm, I'm too old to do. comment on clubs these days <laughs> yeah like, we're both too old to comment on that. <laughs> like we um nevertheless like and one of the things that comes out of treatment of the, the press clients is you you find by questioning clients themselves like a lot of the things that people do it sounds it's kind of it sound judgmental for someone just to say this as an external observer but when you ask clients about their own daily routine like depressed clients will say that they do stuff. What do you spend all day doing? I spend all day on Facebook. I spend all day playing computer games. I spend all day watching Netflix. You know, I sit, sit in the pub all evening and I just get drunk with my friends and stuff. And then if you kind of probe and you ask them, like, how much of this is really making them happy? Like, you know, is that really what they want to be doing? What we, what we tend to find is a lot of the things that people think of as being fun or making them happy on closer inspection, are more like just ways of killing time. Like, in, in many cases, they don't really take that much pleasure from them. Like, but it may actually be a way of avoiding boredom. So they're avoiding the displeasure of boredom, but the thing itself isn't particularly rewarding. And also, nobody ever wants to have put on their gravestone, I wish I'd watched more Netflix. <laughs> I wish I'd spent yeah. more time sure. in the pub or something yeah, yeah, like that. I wish I'd spent more time in nightclubs. Yeah. Like, you know, when you look back on these things, there maybe some people would disagree with this, but when I ask my clients and I say, like, if you look back on the past couple of years of your life, you know, what would, like, how do you feel about the way that you spent your time? And often, particularly when people are depressed, they like, feel as if I haven't really done anything. You know, like, I, I felt like I was having fun and doing things to jump out of the back at now can I think what was the point of any of it? Yeah. Like it doesn't it's not fulfilling. There's a difference between what people think is pleasant or pleasurable and what actually contributes to meaning and fulfillment in life. And they can we, we confuse the two. Like I'll tell you a weird thing about language. Now let's get into linguistics. Let's sure. get into let's just let's do some radical <laughs> let's do some philology. Well, let's do it. Let's right. do it. Let's, like, we haven't we haven't done we haven't done that any philology today. So the word happy, which is an important word, like uh, most people don't know, it used to mean something different. And there's still a trace of it in the English language. So there's a word that most people know, but it doesn't we don't use it much. Uh, the word hapless. So we might say that someone that's fallen on hard times like, or someone that's uh, in a wretched position in life is in a hapless and unfortunate condition, right? And hapless means the opposite of what happy used to mean. Happy used to mean fortunate and flourishing. Like, so we might say they're in an, in an unhappy situation or they're a hapless individual. 
But somehow the word happy went from referring to actually flourishing, like to referring to just feeling good or something vague. Like, so if I ask a bunch of people, what really makes you happy? They'll say eating chocolate, drinking wine, and watching Netflix, right? None of those things actually contribute to what the word happy used to mean, like, which was actually flourishing in life. I mean, some people might disagree with that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but very few, I think a few people that I speak to would say, well, okay, maybe that's not really what I consider to be flourishing, really thriving. Like, does eating chocolate mean that I'm really thriving in life? Not probably not. Like living in accord with my values, like uh, being a good parent, like being creative, like building like things creatively, like helping other people, maybe things that contribute towards thriving in life. And so in ancient philosophy, by the way, when we talk about happiness, we're talking about eudaimonia. Like we're talking about this old meaning of the word happiness. Like, and now what we've got is this lame, superficial, we've been shortchanged by the language. Like we've now got this cheap plastic substitute for what that word used to mean. Like it's now just the kind of the, the loosely related to the, the, the kind of pleasant feeling. And it reminds me also of a distinction that we make in therapy. Albert Ellis, the pioneer of CBT, used to say to his clients when they talked about they want to, to feel better, they want like they want to do things that would make them feel good, like for a change if they're depressed. And, and Ellis would say, look, there's a difference between feeling better and getting better. Mm. And that's the difference between the feeling of happiness and happiness qua flourishing, like qua eudaimonia. Uh, you know, like feeling better is just like feeling happy. It's a superficial plastic substitute. Like actually getting better, like in reality, um, is uh, more like uh, genuine happiness in the original meaning of the word. And that's what people have completely lost sight of that. You know, we don't even ask the question anymore. We don't even know the language, like, you know, to, to, to ask the question. If only, I mean, the only question we need to ask, Marcus Aurelius says this, right? There's only, in a sense, there's only one question we need to pose to ourselves in life. And that's of any thought or action, anything that we're doing voluntarily, does this actually contribute to eudaimonia or not? Mm-hmm. Like, and that, that's the main question that we need to ask. But we don't even really, why can't we even ask that question? Because we don't really have a good translation of eudaimonia. Does it make me feel happy or not? It's not really a good substitute. Does it actually contribute towards my thriving, flourishing like, does it make me a better person or not? Would be a kind of rough substitute, maybe. Well, I guess, you know, Marcus Aurelius never asked himself, did he, did he ever ask himself, am I happy? Like, that wasn't even a, a question that he asked himself. No. I think there was a level of satisfaction that he had in his life. I think the practice of Stoicism is that the highs aren't extremely high and the lows aren't extremely low. It's just, this is just life happening. And, and I guess in, in the context of happiness today, if you take out the extremes and just live a fully, like a satisfaction or a fulfilling life would be of satisfaction, of joy in what you do. And, and, well, and- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that's going to shock, like Great. You know, more <laughs> Epicurean listeners. I'm going to say quite categorically that I think somebody could live a completely uh, fulfilling, flourishing, thriving life and never 
feel uh, the the kind of happiness that people say that they get from uh, eating a nice bar of chocolate or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, because there's something else that's categorically different and runs much deeper in us. Like, which I you could call a sort of happiness. I, I would refer to it as more like a sense of fulfillment mm-hmm. or flourishing. And that comes from knowing that you're acting in accord with your values, like looking at your your life and and being able to take pride in in what you see in the mirror, basically, like like liking yourself, basically. You know, I I think someone could be could go through their whole life and never experience these superficial feelings of happiness and nevertheless have a completely fulfilled life and thrive as an individual because they'd have something much deeper and more profound running as a constant uh, through the life. So they'd have highs and lows, you know, they'd have pain and pleasure, like, but underneath it, they'd have the conviction that they're on the right track in life. Like they, they, they feel that they're where they should be and doing what they should be doing. That's really what I think we should all be aiming for, you know, rather than... The, the, like I say, the, the temporary pleasures that people go for, Often in therapy, when we analyze them, when we do like a functional analysis and behavioral analysis of them, like in depth with clients, it's clear that a lot of people, particularly depressed clients, use pleasurable activities more as like a band-aid, like as a a way of uh, distracting themselves from discomfort or anxiety. Um, So they'll, somebody says, somebody will criticize them at work and they'll feel depressed about it. So then they'll like go home and drink a few glasses of wine to try and blot it out and, and and watch a movie so that they don't have to think about it. And so then their motivation for doing those things isn't really that they give them pleasure. It's more that they distract them from pain. Like, and people do that a lot. They do. And it's interesting. I, I mean, I don't profess to know anything about depression. And so don't, don't hear this as if I know what the hell I'm talking about. But when, when people come and they make that broad sweeping statement is I am so depressed, right? They, you know, it's like, I'm just depressed. And, and there was, uh, I don't know where I got it from, so a, a quote somewhere along the line that really basically said that, you know, it's impossible to, to be depressed. And I'm, I know that's a general sweeping statement, but it's, it's almost impossible to be depressed when you're not thinking about yourself. So in other words, in moments of depression, you have, you, you can't, you got to quit navel gazing. And the minute you quit navel gazing and you find, you know, it's like find a bigger problem. Where can you be, where can you be a contribution to others? And that will in fact take your depression and kind of negate it, balance it, whatever, you know. That's very astute, actually. That's very true. A lot of people don't realize that. You know, I'll tell you who you don't sound like now. Like, you don't sound like Sigmund Freud. Because <laughs> Freud, like, this is how this is how important these are. Like, people don't realize how significant a statement is mm-hmm. or how profound it is. You know, great truths often sound like platitudes, like banal things. But what helps people to realize how important they are is that for half a century, people said the opposite and everyone believed them. Right? So Freud, for half a century, thought that people would overcome depression by lying on a couch for five hours a week, closing their eyes and ruminating about their own past. Right? And now we are like, dude, that's going to make you far more introspective. Like it's going to contribute to morbid ruminate. All of the contemporary research on depression suggests that that would be risky. Like, you know, that may well just cause people to disappear even more up their own backside if they're not careful. 
Like, so the profundity of what you just said shouldn't be underestimated because for half a century, the most famous psychotherapist in the world was telling everyone to do the opposite. And he was wrong, right? Like, he couldn't see that. And so now we know you're right. There's research that shows that people who suffer from depression, um, there's some research that suggests that the, the people who are prone to depression tend to be more introspective. They, I'll tell you, there was one interesting study, but it's an old study. So I, I've always wanted to see this replicated but there was an old study that found that a large people are responding to a questionnaire who suffered from depression and anxiety were much more likely to answer yes to the question. I frequently uh, find myself daydreaming throughout the day. I've always wanted to see someone replicate that because like, mm-hmm. there was a strong correlation. I thought, that's really interesting. Like, and I could see it's related to introversion like introspection and rumination. Like now we know like those qualities are tend to be associated with, with depression. And we know the cure for depression in many cases is to get people out the front door like, and to get them to engage with life again. I'll tell you a story about a little anecdote about therapy. That a lot of times in the first session in therapy, now especially nowadays, much more than 20 or 30 years ago, the therapist will assess the client. And a big part of what they have to do is eliminating, not even before you get to creating, teaching new skills. There's a lot of stuff that you have to eliminate. And often it comes from bad self-help literature um, and stuff like that. So clients will come in and you'll say, how do you cope with your problem? What do you do at the moment to deal with your depression? Well, there's a pretty good chance that a lot of the things that they're doing to cope are actually making it worse, right? Mm-hmm. Across the board, with anxiety, depression, many other problems, like frequently clients' coping strategies are maladaptive and contribute to maintaining their problem. I'll give you two examples. Of that one is that clients with insomnia. I ask every client with insomnia. Every I ask every client how much coffee they drink, and most therapists don't ask their clients that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, every single client I remember uh, working with who had insomnia told me they drank a lot of coffee and maybe they'd take uh, caffeine pills and things and drink Red Bull and stuff as well. You know, I had one guy who said he'd get the jug of coffee from the filter coffee maker and just set it on his table. He goes, I don't know how many cups I drank, but I drink about two or three jugs of coffee a day. <laughs> like, just to sure. keep it top, like a, a keep topping up while he was working on his computer. Like a lot of people are working IT, drink one coffee after another. They call it, my friends used to call it IT juice. Like <laughs> sure, keep coffee. it going. Yeah. Yeah. So people with insomnia, they drink gallons of coffee, right? So I asked them, why do you drink a lot of coffee? And they'd say, isn't it obvious? Like, I feel really tired every day because I've got insomnia. And I say, but if I drank 15 cups of coffee a day, I'd have problems getting to sleep. Like, and then you say, and then they say, well, I see your point. And then I say, well, you know, do you think it might be an idea to cut back in the coffee? And they say, oh, no, I can't do that. I say, why not? And they say, because I feel so tired. I need it to get through the day. And you think, wow, like, this is completely circular. Like, so you have insomnia because you drink 15 cups of coffee a day and you refuse to stop doing it because you feel tired as a consequence of the insomnia. Like, at some point, you need to just snap this vicious circle, right? Like, this reasoning is completely like circular mm-hmm. so with clients with depression the, the way they do that is you so with a client with depression you might say why don't you just go out and, and apply for a new job and go to the gym and, and date people and you know all that kind of fun stuff and they say well i can't i feel too depressed to do it 
And then if you say to clients, well, can you make me a, a list of all the things that you have done in the past that you really enjoyed doing? Draw up a list on a flip chart. Well, I like, uh, you know, going to the zoo. I like hanging out with my friends. I like going to the theatre, yada, yada. Right. And they said, well, how many of these things have you done over the past three weeks or four weeks? Well, none of them. And so the therapist might say, well, if I made a list of all the things that I most enjoy doing in life and abandon doing all of them permanently, after a while, I'd probably start to feel depressed. Like, so do you not think it might make sense to start doing some of these things again? And they say, well, I can't do that. They say, why not? And they go, because I feel too depressed. <laughs> <laughs> the vicious so cycle, lot- yeah. There's a lot of yeah. circularity yeah. In, uh, in clients' thinking. Just that's just a tip. To be, you know, it's amazing how blind people are to to these uh, circular uh, self-maintaining problems. And, yeah, and there's nothing worse than a downward spiral. There's nothing more difficult, I think, to stop than that downward spiral that we can sometimes get into mentally, even emotionally, and 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 actually be aware of it and not able to stop it. It's like, it takes a lot of work to, to stop that and then rewind to get back going again. It's, it's a lot of, a lot of work. So Donald, let me, I'm going to, there's a couple things I want to do as we start to wind up and, and I could go on for a long time around this conversation, but you know, I, myself, you know, you talk about happiness and it's not, happiness is actually not a word that I use a lot. It's, it's one of those things that I came to realize a long time ago that, if I if I had some judgment of what made me happy, I'd be I I I don't know what I do. I can't I can't define it. So I you know if somebody says to me, "Are you happy?" I go, "Sure, I guess." You know I don't want to get in a debate about what happiness is, but it is an interesting word. And the other word that I'm now have been recently contemplating is the word success, and I'm actually starting to take it out of my vocabulary because I think it's bullshit. I think it's, you know, social media, societal. I'm going, why am I using success? (laughs) What the hell does that even mean anymore? So that's my contemplation. I'm not making anybody else wrong. This is my own view. And I'm going, what the hell is success? I like, I don't, if somebody said to me, Patrick, are you feeling successful? I'd go, okay, I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I I look at my life and I go, am I satisfied? Am I feeling fulfilled in my life? Am I Am, am I uh, feeling like I'm being the contribution? Is that success? Okay, sure. Then if that's the de- definition of success, I, I'm, I love my, my level of success. If somebody says, have I made enough money? Have I influenced enough people? I, I don't know. I don't know about that, right? So anyways, I'd like your view on the word success. And, and is, do, you, do you come across that? 100% I agree. I think it's bullshit. Uh, let me tell you a little story, though. I'll, t- I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you why I think it's bullshit. Um, and where it comes from. I thought about this a lot. This is my error theory, right? Mm -hmm. I think we're born and gradually we develop language and we try and figure out what's going on around us. So we have to kind of construct our identities as we're growing up as small children. Mainly kids look to their parents, they look to other people and they emulate what they see around them. And what do they see around them? Like they see people chasing after the external trappings of success and material uh, property, wealth, like reputation and stuff like that. So you would naturally, as a child, conclude, I guess this must be the meaning of life. Mm-hmm. It seems to be what everyone else is doing. Sure. Like they're all like trying to get a big house and a better car than their neighbor and all that kind of palaver. So I guess that's what we must be here for. Like for sure, everyone else is doing that. And then, so by the, by the time you get self-reflective enough to, to question it, it's kind of too late. 
Right, you're already enmeshed in the, this web of bullshit. That's true. Uh, I keep asking going, myself, I'm 62, I keep asking myself, yeah. why the hell didn't I figure this out at 42? Why? Like, and because uh, like, it's what everyone else looks like they're doing. But the problem is, right, that the Stoics, I think, would say that part of the problem is it can be viewed this way. We distinguish between things that are an end in themselves in philosophy and things that are merely a means to an end. A good example would be money, right? Money in itself is worth nothing. It's just a piece of paper or a number on a computer screen, right? It's literally garbage, right? It's totally irrelevant. But it becomes, it develops what we call instrumental value. Like you can use it as a tool to get other stuff that might be worth, you can buy things with it allegedly, right? So then maybe the stuff that you could buy would be important. Like, so what can you buy with it? Like we can buy a house. And Aristotle said this, but you can always ask, what do you want it for the sake of? So, like, I don't know when you want the house for, like, I guess it'll improve my quality of life in some ways, right? Well, make it keep the rain off me and, you know, like, make, make, me, make me more comfortable and stuff. But what do you want that for? And so Aristotle said you can keep probing and pushing this question back. So almost everything that we pursue is, is a means to some other end. And the ultimate end, Aristotle said, is eudaimonia. It's this kind of inner state of self-love, like being able to take pride in yourself, feeling in accord with your values and stuff. You know, if you ask people, like ultimately they'll say, well, like, you know, the money and the it's all just a means to an end. You know, even, uh, you know, I eat food. What do you eat food for? So like I can live longer. Like, well, what do you want to live for longer for? Like, I, like so that I can do stuff that's important and like I can feel them. You know, doing something important. Life in itself is neither good nor bad. It's the use that we make of it, right? Like, so that it gives me an opportunity to to do like important stuff, right? Ah, oh, so you want to, your ultimate goal is to feel that you're doing important stuff in life, like to have this kind of satisfaction, right? But no one can see that, right? So when you look around, all you see are people running around trying to get money and houses and cars and you know other stuff. And so you naturally make the fundamental ethical error we all do growing up because we're problem is we view people from it. We learn by looking at other people and we only see what they're doing on the outside. So we can see what they're doing. We can't see why they're doing it, right? So we start to confuse the means with the end. And we think maybe the goal in life is having money and a car and a status and a good job and stuff like that. Whereas maybe originally the point behind having those things was just like that they give you more opportunity and more comfort like in order to achieve the real goal, like which is enlightenment and flourishing and you know valued living and stuff like that, eudaimonia, all that really good stuff. But because we can't see it, we, we think that the, uh, the, the means is the end. Mm-hmm. And we, get, we get trapped in that. And I don't really know what the, the societal solution is that, except that we talk about solution is except that we just talk about it more. Mm-hmm. You know, and that we we have more, we, we do more philosophy, like we encourage people to question it more deeply that we do. Aristotle said, just ask what you want it for the sake of and what do you want that for the sake of? Well, maybe just asking questions like that more often mm-hmm. would be the, the remedy for it. But if nobody ever questions anything, like if we don't have conversations about it, then for sure, like throughout the entire history of mankind, we're going to keep being duped in the same way over and over again into pursuing superficial things for that very simple reason. So as we wind down, there's a couple, I mean, I got so many questions I still have got to ask you, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to limit myself, but I want to ask you this question is when you, you know, the study of stoicism, 
CBT, all the things that you've done, you know, when you step back, would you consider yourself a new age stoic, number one? Or, or do you live your life by a stoic philosophy? And I'll stop there. Do you, do you kind of live your life in, in, through a stoic philosophy, given all the research and all the study that you've done? Yeah, I mean, like, there's this awkwardness about saying it. It's actually like saying you're a philosopher. You know, normally if you do a degree in a subject, then you, you, know, you say, well, I'm now a mathematician or I'm, you know, whatever. I teach it, right? But philosopher always has this kind of connotation. So philosophy students always joke about this. They go, well, I've got, you know, a degree. Maybe I've got a PhD in philosophy, but I don't know. It seems weird to say that I'm a philosopher Mm -hmm. because it kind of implies a status. And Stoic had that. Epictetus said to his students, like, maybe you guys shouldn't even call yourself Stoics. Like, so then what do you call yourself? Like a student of Stoicism. But then it becomes like a circumlocution that doesn't really trip off the tongue very easily. Mm-hmm. So I, if I wanted to be pedantic about it, I would say I think of myself as a student of Stoicism. I think of myself as a philosopher in the original sense of the word. So Socrates was surrounded by these guys called um, the Sophists, and uh, they claimed to be wise men or experts. And Socrates disavowed that. He said, uh, I'm not wise, I'm, but I'm a lover of wisdom. So that's where the word philosophy comes from. It means somebody who loves wisdom and, you know, like a student of wisdom, right? And so in that same sense, uh, that's how I would view myself as somebody like who aspires to be a stoic mm-hmm. or aspires to wisdom and enlightenment. And I, I, I would say that I'm a philosopher in that kind of more modest sense of the word. And in terms of a daily routine, yeah, like I try and live in accord with Stoic values pretty much. The reason I can do that is because I would say that the Stoicism is a big and complicated philosophy. There are aspects of it that people aren't interested in that much today. Like Stoic logic is a bit dated now. People don't study it that much. Um, Stoic physics is kind of interesting and mystical, but no one worships Zeus anymore. or, you know, carries out animal sacrifices and stuff. So, like, certain aspects of it are going to be different in our culture. But the ethic in Stoicism, the idea that arity or moral wisdom is the only true good, which also comes from Socrates, I agree with that. And so that leads on to many practical conclusions. And uh, I think that applies just as much today as it did two and a half thousand years ago in the time of Socrates and the Stoics. And I try to have a daily routine that's consistent with that. You know, I use the stoic contemplative practices every day and I try and dedicate my life to studying philosophy and sharing that with other people. And uh, I I try to be willing to sacrifice things uh, in order to do that, which gets easier, I think, as you get older. Yeah. I'll tell you a weird thing. And we were talking about success. I've worked with many wealthy people over the years and I've been poor and I've been moderately well off. And I find as I get older, um, the more money I have, for some strange reason, the less I spend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like somehow, you know, like when I was younger like, and I was broke, like I'm sure I spent far more money. <laughs> I find that, I find that I've totally had that transition over the years. I just, you know, stuff to me is just another thing to ensure. It's another thing to look after. It's just another thing. And I'm going, you know, it collects dust or I, I just don't have any, I really have no material things goals. I love the home we live in and, and that's about the extent of it. Whether I have a, a, a fancier car makes actually no difference to me at this point in my life. 
Yeah, I think, you know, like I, I didn't realize people were talking about minimalism and I was reading articles about it and, I, and my friends told me I was a minimalist and I honestly hadn't even really thought about it. Yeah. And then I thought, I guess I, I like I am, right? I don't, I don't really have many possessions. I mean, and in some ways I kind of, I, I, I live in a slightly privileged way, I, I would say. I'm, I'm not as much of a minimalist as I think I look like. I don't own a car or a house. Like, but I, I tend to live in Airbnbs and uh, hostels and stuff. So sometimes <laughs> I'll live in pretty modest. So, so it kind of looks like I'm bumming around. Um, <laughs> and in some ways, I'm probably saving money by doing that. Yeah. But at the moment, the place I'm staying in is actually pretty extravagant. It's full of antiques and stuff. Yeah. So like the weird paradox about that, that, I didn't think about this on purpose either, but the ancient Stoics talk about this. They say the weird thing is the potentially if you have nothing, you end up, like uh, enjoying, but like Socrates was always getting invited to banquets, and the, the Stoics, who Zeno, who was like a beggar and lost his entire fortune, he lectured on the Stoicoically, as everyone knows, this porch in the Agora in Athens. But what people don't realize is that there was one of the most glamorous buildings in Athens. It was like uh, an art gallery, uh, and so that's where he got to hang out all day, even though he didn't have any shoes. Like, and he was a beggar, and I, I, that occurred to me. I was giving an interview to a journalist here in uh, uh, this kind of sumptuous hotel in Athens called the Hotel Gran Britannia. And the journalist was kind of, I just went there because I thought it was a convenient place to meet and, and to have coffee. And the journalist in her, her article said a lot about the hotel and she was like, wow, this is an amazing place and stuff. And, and I was like, but it doesn't cost me anything to be here. Like anyone could just walk in here. Like, you know, I guess if I had a big house and stuff, the paradox is I'd probably feel like, I, you know, we should do the interview there or something. Yeah. Um, but sometimes if you don't have anything, you actually get to hang out in more glamorous surroundings, <laughs> ironically, <laughs> if you're lucky. If you're lucky. Uh, that's what happened to the Stoics. Like, the Stoicoikoi is a classic example of that. They, they did their philosophy in this amazing, uh, you know, work of art uh, building. Okay. <laughs> Gosh, great conversation, Donald. Really, really appreciate your time. As we wind down, I do a little thing called rapid fire, just a few questions that we fire out there. Now you talk about your self-care, your you've got a morning routine. You you do you do, do you practice meditation? Do you journal? What what's your kind of your fundamental routine? Mm, like I have cold showers every day. I do one meal a day, like I do intermittent fasting. I do the view from above visualization technique, practice mm. cognitive distancing. At the end of the day, I review like, the events of the day and evaluate them from an external perspective. Um, so I practice a lot of stoic contemplative. I don't sit and meditate like a Buddhist would. Not very often. I used to do that in the past. But I practice other contemplative exercises throughout the day. Cool. What's a book that you gift? Do you gift your own books or do you gift other um, books? Geez, you know what? I just, the last book I gave to someone, that'd, that'd be an easier question. What's the last book I gave to someone? I gave my friend Casey, who's a comic book editor, a copy of my other friend, uh, Karen Duff, Duffy, who I was speaking to earlier on today. She's a, a writer. She wrote a book called Backbone, How to Live with Chronic Pain Without Becoming One. It's called, <laughs> it's one of the best titles I've ever heard. Like, and uh, she's a f much funnier and wittier writer than I am. And uh, she has a chapter in Stoicism in that book. It's about her own health, pro chronic health problems. She has quite uh, severe, has quite severe chronic health problems that she overcame. And so I, I recommend that book to people. Actually, if people are kind of 
not really into kind of dry academic stuff, that's a really easy, um, entertaining read with like a, a chunk of stuff about stoicism. And it's backbone by Karen Duffy. She's in the movie Dumb and Dumber. Like she used <laughs> to be an MTV presenter. So she's like, uh, she, she's also an author. Okay, so uh, minimalist, iPhone or Android? Oh, man, Android. And the computer I'm using is Linux-based, right? So I'm, again, a bit of a geek like that. <laughs> I use Google and Linux for everything. Um, like Linux, Linux all the way, man. Favorite swear word? Favorite swear word? Yeah. Holy shit, I've got a whole story about that, actually. Um I don't swear anywhere near as much as I used to because people in the West Coast of Scotland swear a lot. Yeah. Um, and I guess, like, I don't know, I just, like, my favorite swear was probably just fuck. Yeah. But... Uh, That's a common go-to. I've got, uh, one day I'll tell you, if I, next time if, if I'm on, I'll tell you a whole story about my actual favorite because it's quite, I have quite a literary story about that involves Edgar Allan Poe and uh, the, the art of rhetoric and... Uh, history of language and a particular <laughs> swear word that I really like. It's a long story. Okay, so um, this is an interesting question, I think, for you. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Not really, because no? um, I've got so many. I don't really think, because I have lots yeah. and lots and lots. I'm that way um, too, right? I'm that way I'll tell too. You what, I, I, this is how I'd answer it, actually. I'm cheating. But I'll go, actually, what do I do? Right, I write, and when I'm assigning a book, I always write Dare to be Wise, which is mm. a quote from Horace. It's also very short. Like, That's a good one, though. That so is. What's the shortest quote that I can think of? I'm <laughs> 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 writing it on lots of books. So I like there to be wise, though. It's about just, it's kind of like just do it. Yeah. You know, like just, like, just fix your mind. It's like love, wisdom, philosophy, but like, you know, just have the courage to persevere with it. It's quite meaningful to me, but also very easy to write. I like that one. Yeah. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? Oh, far out. I don't like. Well, I don't. I don't. I don't believe in heaven, and uh, I don't know if I'd want to be in an afterlife. But what I would like is actually like Socrates in Plato's Apology. He says, "If heaven does exist, what I'd like is the opportunity to talk to famous dead people." So, I'd, what I'd like him to say is, "Oh, like Socrates is waiting <laughs> to talk to you." Like, I'd be like, "That's awesome." Okay, that's the best answer <laughs> I've ever had. I love it. Do you have a favorite tune? A favorite tune, yeah, like I've got lots and lots. I'll cheat again and say that I guess I've chosen when I'm on the. I've been on my friend's radio show a few times, and he suddenly sprang this on me like the first time. He's like, "So what's your intro tune?" And I was like, "I don't know." Like, and I was like, "Ah." And the one I picked was "Stay Too Long" by this English kind of rapper and soul singer called Plan B. And it was lucky. It's fortuitous because it's got a really good intro. So, like, they always play that when I'm on my friend's radio show. That's great. <laughs> and last of all, Donald, what are you grateful for today? Uh, you know, I think a lot about gratitude. And, yeah, like, uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for being alive. I am grateful for being in Athens and the opportunity to travel. When I was a young guy, I never dreamt that I'd ever leave Scotland somehow. Before the internet and stuff, it just seemed like an inconceivable idea to me. Growing up in, in relative poverty in a small town in Scotland, I never thought I'd go to the States, like Canada, like Athens, or over in Europe. So I'm really grateful for just the opportunity 
to do these things. And, you know, I don't take it for granted because, you know, we could get hit by a bus tomorrow. So I'm like, you know, every moment I'm like, wow, like, you know, just check all this cool stuff out. Like you can see the Acropolis out my window kind of thing. That's and I'm grateful cool. for the opportunity to, you know, I'm actually, and I mean that, I mean this in all sincerity, like I'm grateful for the opportunity to be on your podcast. Like it's, uh, people say, oh, thanks for coming and, you know, talking to me about, and I'm like, dude, it's my hobby. Like, you know, I the opportunity just to sit and shoot the breeze, like, and talk about all my favorite philosophers and stuff like that. Again, you know, my father worked on building sites his entire life. He'd come home exhausted and like, he would have given his right arm like for the opportunity just to like sit every day like and have a like one-to-one chat with people all over the world about you know all the uh, poetry and philosophy and stuff that he was interested in so it's a miracle of the internet that we can do that now and I'm incredibly grateful for for being able to to sit here and and talk to you today as, as well as all the other webinars and podcasts and stuff that I do. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I am definitely grateful for the opportunity to talk to you today and and meet with you. I'm also grateful for uh, Cheryl Maycock, who is uh, you know really the the boss of my whole life. Sometimes when it comes to my business, that uh, looks after me and has got my back. Together, we've studied a little bit of uh, stoicism and done the work of that from Ryan Holiday. And she actually was the one that directed me to you and. Uh, Said we got to get Donald. She loves you. She loves you. She's so looking forward to this podcast. She was listening to the audiobooks. I should give her. We should give her a shout out as well. Like I I spoke to her by email. I spoke to Ryan Holiday today by email as well. Yeah. So you know, I he's a good guy. I'm friends with him. I I like I like all his books as well. I recommend Ryan's books to people as well. By the way, mainly particularly the Daily Stoic. I think that's a good. Oh, such great work! Such great work. So once again, thank you, Donald. Good to meet you. Thanks for your time and uh, bringing what you did. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.